This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. Well, greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pastor Mike Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church Powered by The Witness, a Black Christian Collective. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at BurnsClan. Follow at your own risk. And I'm riding solo today because we have an awesome guest. I have been ready and willing and eager to interview this guest for a long time. He was doing phenomenal work. Of course, I'm speaking of our guest Mr. Terrence Lester. Terrence, how are you doing today, sir? Man, I'm doing amazing. Uh, it's great to be here with you, man. I'm looking forward to our discussion. And uh, yeah, just thank you for having me. Okay, now I got to read your bio because like I was saying beforehand, I was like, man, this brother has done some incredible stuff and you're so humble. I wouldn't know that you had done any of this, these things, <laughs> but, but it's clear you're doing amazing work. So Terrence Lester is a speaker, activist, author, and thought leader in the realm of systemic poverty. He's known for nationwide campaigns that bring awareness to issues surrounding homelessness, poverty, and economic inequality. Uh, in 2018, Terrence led the March Against Poverty as he walked from Atlanta to Memphis. That is 386 miles, y'all. 386 miles. He finished the march and spoke at the historic Lorraine Motel for the 50th anniversary of MLK's assassination. Um, he founded the nonprofit Love Beyond Walls in 2013. It's probably how many of you are familiar with him. He's helped hundreds of individuals experience experiencing homely, homelessness and poverty to rebuild their lives. And in 2019, he launched the first museum in the U.S. representing homelessness um, and out of a shipping container called the Dignity Museum. And we're not even really talking about the, the four or five or seven degrees that you have and all the <laughs> incredible speaking opportunities. We're talking about your book, okay? And this book is entitled <laughs> When We Stand, um, The Power of Seeking Justice Together. And I got the early copy, so it looks a little bit different. Everybody ain't able, favor ain't fair. Um, but also, I want to let you know, clearly I read it because my kid's been writing in it and all this. So I just want to throw that out there, brother. Listen, I had to give you honor, man, because I think it's so important for this moment. Brother, I, well, I really appreciate it. Um, I think this moment is speaking to all of us. And I am, you know, just really humbled and great, grateful to be a part of the, the tapestry of, of social change. Uh, as it relates to how, how do we address uh, real systemic issues that exist um, in society and culture. Uh, I am a person of faith, and so a lot of my faith grounds me in the work that I do. Um, it, it's what, uh, you know, sparks my ideas, my creativity, but also um, gets me to show up e each and every single day uh, because this work is, is really hard. It's tiring. Uh, but it's necessary. And, and so I'm just I'm grateful to be a part of uh, the fabric of, of social change. You know, you're talking about this. I was actually going to save this for later, but you're talking about the fact that you're a person of faith. You're doing social justice work. You're highly educated. You're on the Coke commercials, which I remember <laughs> I was 
I was watching television and I did that, you know, that Leonardo DiCaprio meme. I was like, <laughs> I know him. Like, <laughs> and, and you're doing yeah. all this together. It seems as though you're a hybrid. You're fusing all these different, different disciplines and realities together. What is that like to be a person of faith in advocacy work right now in 2021? Yeah, well, I like to talk about it as not being separate things. Uh, it's it's all of who I am, right? And so um, one of the things that I've seen trip people up who are persons of faith uh, do is they like to separate these these different realities and put them all in different buckets, right? Mm -hmm. I'm operating from the same bucket. I'm a black man. I'm in America, right? I'm a person of faith, but I also experience uh, social injustices even against myself each and every day, mm -hmm. right? And so I don't have an opportunity to separate these realities. All I know is that these existential experiences are shaping me uh, in a way that I want to stand up against the injustices that are uh, that are plaguing communities, uh, black and brown, uh, of persons that look like me. Uh, another part of this story is that I, too, emerge from impoverishment. Right. I watched my mother uh, struggle as a single parent, uh, work multiple jobs and put herself through school while mm. providing for myself and my sister. And so uh, not only am I fashioned by the resiliency of a strong black woman, but I'm also nurtured uh, by the black church, right? Um, mm. uh, being grounded in, in um, the liturgy that included both the social context and the faith, the liturgy that included uh, the speaking out against the issues that were plaguing the community, but also being grounded in this eschatological uh, hope mm. that we have in the gospel. And so all of this has shaped me um, and these are my realities. And what I'm trying to do is understand introspectively what are my unique gifts and my skill sets and my talents and how can I offer that to the world uh, to create the world that we're all wanting to see, which is a world of goodness and change. Man, you started talking about eschatology <laughs> and ah, this is about to be good. Okay, I'm excited now. I'm really excited. <laughs> your, your previous book to this one was entitled I See You. And it talked yeah. about seeing people whom society had rendered invisible. Now you're talking about when we stand. And there's a shift and progression from the I to the we. And yeah. is that an intentional shift? And also beyond that, why do you think it's so important for us to move beyond the individual to the corporate and communal? Right. Uh, yes, it is very intentional. Uh, one of the things that I was challenged with early on in uh, just starting an organization that advocated on behalf of people experiencing homelessness uh, was, the, was these very real and false narratives uh, that persisted about people experiencing homelessness, that because you're without an address, that you may be lazy or you don't have a good character or there's mm -hmm. something morally wrong with you. And so uh, the real work was helping the reader or helping people understand that we have some embedded narratives that have been framed in our understanding or viewing our neighbors without an address. And my, my whole thing is just because a person ha doesn't have an address does not mean that they're not your neighbor, right? And what yeah, I'm trying not. to get at is helping people to understand that 
every single person, uh, whether address or not, whether rich or poor, whether sleeping on a park bench or pulling up a chair in, uh, to a desk in a, in a high rise building is fashioned in the Imago day. And what I've seen is that we have started to use a, a metric system of worth and value in this country based upon all of these extrinsic things, right? What kind of car mm -hmm. you drive? Who do you associate with? What do you work? What kind of coffee did you, did you drink? What fraternity or sorority do you belong to? All of these extrinsic things. And what happens is when a person doesn't have access to those things, my question is rhetorically, are they less worthy? And the question resoundingly is no, uh, because we need to start with the intrinsic worth and value of every single person. But because if we do that, we level the playing field uh, that whether you're sleeping behind a, a dumpster or you are a person that holds a Ph.D., you're still worthy. Whether you're a person mm. that ate out of a trash can or you ate in a fine dining restaurant, you're still worthy. And what we need to understand is that every single person, whether address or not, uh, is deserving of being seen. Because home, what I define home as in, in that particular uh, text is home is a place where you're seen, you feel seen, where you feel like you belong and where you are accepted. We're talking yes. about something that's far bigger than just uh, a, a, a roof with four walls. We're talking about does a person without an address feel like they are accepted when they enter into mm -hmm. your presence? Right. Mama. And many people. Right. Don't feel like they have a home because they haven't been seen. They haven't been accepted and they don't feel like they uh, they belong. I wrote here recently that, um, you know, saying that everybody is welcome is uh, substantially different from building in a, a community with you in mind. I'll never mm, forget. I was mm. giving this uh, talk at Georgia Tech to ar architectural students and they wanted me to talk about empathy in design, right? And I came from the, the position of hostile architecture, right? We design buildings, uh, we uh, put boulders underneath bridges, we do all of these intentional things to exclude people, right? And it's hostile, it's violent in the way that we even design and shape communities. Mm -hmm. And what I was trying to get people to understand is that once you are excluded, uh, you are set up to be erased. And we need to be reversing wow. what it means to be raced in society. But firstly, we got to start with what it means to be empathetic. Wow. Wow. Man. So I think you've answered even part of my next question, which is really about the ways in which we approach seeking justice and some of the misconceptions that we have about it. And if I were to see your book and I were the you know, a person who hasn't, you know, maybe seen other spaces or kind of seen some data from a high level that says there's a difference between someone talking about justice and actually doing justice. If I were to just see it, I'd say, well, aren't people already, aren't we all seeking justice already? I mean, of course. I mean, it's, it dominates the conversation. Our corporations are talking about it. Our very prominent athletes are, are saying something about the injustices that they see around them. Churches are speaking about it in some context. Is it a misconception that we have that just because we are talking prominently about justice, that means we're doing justice? Yeah, I, I think I think that is is something that is 
you know, uh, totally different. I think both are needed, right? Uh, but one uh, doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? Just because you are talking about uh, issues that are are persistent against uh, marginalized communities doesn't necess- necessarily mean that those issues are being addressed, right? And so whether you post, you know, a black square or you are talking about these real issues that are causing uh, havoc in communities uh, that are marginalized doesn't necessarily mean that you are the person that's on the ground uh, making these things happen. Now, I do believe that every single person is needed, right? Which is right. which goes to your point about, you know, why are we all interconnected? Why is we uh, the, the, the conversation now, because it needs all of us. You know, some people do research. Some people pick up phones and they call their local politicians. Some people are registering people to vote. Some people are in the uh, soup kitchens uh, using their gift uh, to create food for people who won't have food. Right. Some people are literally writing policies. Some people are uh, writing about these things from a social media standpoint helping to negate and um, deconstruct these false ideas of what it means to be poor and, and black and brown in, in society and culture. And so like, I think all of those things are needed, um, but they can't happen without uh, one another, right? Uh, we need right, the person right. who is speaking from stage, but we also need the person who's standing in community. We need the person who is doing the research, but we are also needing uh, the persons who are willing to walk out that research. Um, I just so happen to uh, find myself in a social location where I'm in academia, you know, doing research uh, for a PhD uh, public policy, but I'm also finding myself activated in community. You know, a person once asked me, you know, uh, just probably not too long ago, what does activism means? Right. And uh, when I answered this question, I used the, the phraseology of, of a mentor. She says, you know, it, it, it means the very, very thing that it's suggesting. A person is active, right? Uh, it's right. seeing the issues uh, that are happening or plaguing communities and culture and being activated to do something about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's seeing issues that are real uh, and systemic and being activated to stand up and address those issues. And that's starkly different from the understanding of, you know, what charity is versus what actual real systemic change is, right? right? If we use the metaphor of the river and dead bodies are floating down to the bottom of the river, uh, yeah, it's noble to start pulling them out, right, and finding a place. But the real quest is to go to the, to the beginning of the riverhead and to mm. understand why dead bodies are in the river in the first yes. place. And so both are needed uh, and both complement each other and people just got to find their role in the fight. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit 
pts.edu admit. You know, when you're talking about the interconnectedness of society, you talk very prominently in the book about getting out of our bubble. And our audience, the, the audience that we aim to speak to um, and center are black Christians. And so whenever we hear get out of your bubble, whenever we hear don't live and operate and work and do justice in isolation, for some of us, when we read that and when we hear that, there's this kind of reflexive recoil because of the fact that some of those spaces have been harmful to us, right? And so some of those spaces have made us feel like we're not welcome. You mentioned even experiencing racism and injustice yourself on a regular basis, even with all that you do and with all that you have accomplished. How do black Christians, how are we, how should we think about getting outside of our bubbles? How should we think about helping other people and also learning from other people and seeking justice together when some of those spaces, when we've stepped outside of our protective and insulated bubble, have actually harmed us. Sure. Um, which is a really, um, it's a really difficult question uh, because, you know, part of the question that you're posing is about how do we collectively heal uh, from the trauma yes. that we have yes. experienced uh, for the, our own sanity and our own uh, sense of existence, right? Um, and finding freedom in being uh, Black and existing in a country that uh, is sometimes in opposition of uh, our, our skin being, being kissed by nature's sun, right? And so, yes, yes. you know, I think part of it is, you know, really owning and taking responsibility of our own uh well-being and sense of, of healing. Uh, one of the things that I've had to do as a leader, and I'm not suggesting that this is the framework for everybody else, but I've really had to work on uh, my self-care and my therapy and my mm, recovery process and mm. finding sacred spaces that are safe for me to exist without me having wow. the pressure of feeling like I have to perform, right? Because if you have to perform to be included, you'll have to perform to stay included, right? Mm. And so that's something that I am uh, not trying to do as as a as a black Christian. Another thing too is uh, the diet, uh, because diet is more than just food, right? Uh, diet is what you read, what you consume, mm. you know, mm. what you listen to, who are you around, and all of those things, and I really had to be very intentional about the voices uh, that I listen to, the the content that I'm reading, not not the the type of Eurocentric framework that has shaped much of the narratives that we've uh, had to deconstruct in our own uh, development as uh, as Black Christians, but like right. literally leaning into the voices that speak to my existential realities, uh, mm. the voices that affirm my existence. And the voices that help to shape my own voice, right? And then thirdly is to understand that I have power to build a table and to invite people mm. to. That mm. I have power 
to create seats at a table. Right. Uh, I wrote this in the book and I really meant it that diversity uh, without inclusion is just shallow marketing. Right. And I know we've been in many spaces where we've felt like uh, we've had our skin wanted for marketing, but not our voices for truth and power. Right. And so uh, I had to understand myself that I have the, the, the power. Right. To create my own table but also have the power to choose intentionally about the the bridges that I walk across and inviting those to the table that we are establishing to do the work that will benefit people that look like me. That's brilliant. Um, Thank you. That is extremely helpful. I think that what you touch on with healing is such an important element of our future growth and our legacy as black Christians in this very tense cultural moment, navigating what it means to not just do justice and work out externally, but also to do the internal work of healing as well so that we can be all God has called us to be. You mentioned starting your, you know, talking about building your own tables and, and how has Love Beyond Walls, how has that really shaped how you view your own agency and then also you know, how you build a table, what are some misconceptions you had before you started it? Talk a little bit about that, because that's really like a get out of your bubble moment uh, to really serve others. So how has that shaped how you view even this idea of the bubble and then your neighbor around you? Yeah, um, this is this is important because I want I want to make this this distinction. I thought that I was building something but found out that God was using it to build me. Hmm. Um, I never thought that I would be, you know, a leader or, you know, be writing these types of books or, um, you know, speaking to all these issues. All I know is that I went through uh, painful experiences in my life. Uh, There were moments when I experienced, um, uh, acute homelessness myself as a teenager, right? Wow. Um, and had individuals come into my life and speak to me about possibly one day using those experiences that I had overcome uh, in a way that would reach other people that I could relate to, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I never thought that would materialize. I just wanted to show up with my whole heart, right? Um, and even to this day, that's all I'm trying to do is show up with my whole heart. When wow. the idea actually came to me about starting an organization, I, I'll, I'll admit I was fearful. I didn't right. know how to do it. I had never gone to school uh, for nonprofit work. You know, I had never uh, I was never taught about how to design a program or to use design thinking in uh, all of my ideas uh, to really understand the empathetic approach before I flesh out an idea and put it out to the book. I I never knew all of that. Right. Mm -hmm. It's something that as I took the first step and focused in the small way on one thing that as I was faithful to those things, I started to grow and develop and evolve as a leader uh, because I became what I called a, a questionnaire. Right. Right, um, right. That I can I can use questions to learn. I can learn from persons who have experience, but I also can learn from the people that our organization 
uh, is walking with. And I just wanted to make myself a student of the work. Uh, last year, we launched a campaign that spread everywhere. Um, it's called yes. Love Sinks In. I, I'll never forget, I was sitting in a center, and we have a community center in Atlanta, and a guy walked in. It was March of last year, a little over a year ago, and he says these words. He says, man, I think I'm a, I think I'm going to lose my life because I have nowhere to wash my hands hmm. and with tears. Hmm. You, I mean, you go back a little over a year, everything was closing down. Even libraries in which uh, people experience homelessness frequent as daytime shelters to access information and all these things. And he says, what am I going to do? The very context of being proximate and listening and engaging, right, um, sparked the idea to address those concerns. Uh, in that moment, I thought about using uh, these portable hand washing stations uh, to start distributing them out into communities right here locally in Atlanta and had no clue that we would start with five, grow to 15, grow to 50. And uh, now we're in 62 cities all around the country wow. spreading mm -hmm. sanitation because sanitation should be a human right. Now, yes. in the beginning, I would have never thought about that. But I learned over time that it's more important to listen before you just haphazardly jump out and try to do things. That there's real... Uh, innovation that comes out of listening and being proximate to the community in which you're willing to serve. Wow. Yeah, that is so helpful. And I think so, so many of us don't realize that, that the work we're doing is building us. We think about the external things. And that's really what leads me to my next question, where you really had some fire in the book about busyness. And I want to read this quote really quickly. You said busyness is a thief. You go on to say, we've got to reorient our lives and churches and look at some of the ways we have turned to busyness to try and schedule a sense of fulfillment, of being filled up. Man, listen, I didn't, I didn't, I don't understand how you read my mail, how you looked in my calendar. I don't understand, brother. You just, you named what many of us in this work are really striving to avoid which is this overwhelming, cascading, you know, kind of avalanche of work all the time because we want to, to believe and think that we're doing the work, right? And that work yeah. requires us to be busy. How have you learned, you know, to, to keep that rhythm with all that you're doing and also not burning yourself out and seeking your fulfillment in that work? Yeah, Um I, I've, I've really had to be very intentional and create uh, me and my wife. We talk about a let go list. Uh, mm. I made uh, I wrote something uh, here recently that said we need to, you know, uh, not be so concerned about our to do list uh, as much as we should be concerned about our let go list. Right. Mm. Um, my, my, my. Because here's the thing. It's not about willingness. It's about availability. Hmm. I'll say that again. It's not about willingness. It's about availability. And most people are passionate about things that they're willing to do. They're just not av available for. Right. And so if we are really desiring wow. to create change, we have to move from, oh, I'm willing. You know, 
I'm passionate about that to making ourselves available so we can be activated uh, and be an active part of the real social change that we all seek and desire. And that is centered around this concept of margin. Uh, How much margin do you have to contribute to the things that you're passionate about? It causes us to be introspective and really look at our plates uh, metaphorically uh, to to understand what's on our plates that shouldn't be. You know, I get mm. asked all the times when I give talks about uh, volunteer work and all these things. Uh, the number one question I'm asked is, how, how do I get involved? Where do I start? And uh, they're looking for me to give them some uh, science around, you know, how, how to get involved and make a difference. Uh, and I give them the untraditional answer of, are you available? Um, Have you created margin in your life? Mm. Um, uh, Because, I mean, if we use the, you know, the 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 game of football, if if you are the quarterback and you're throwing a pass to the receiver that's on the route, that's not on the route. How can he catch the ball? Uh, Mm. If you're the person uh, that is wanting to make real change, but you're not on that route, how can you make the change? You know, if you're the person that wants to give more time specifically to a certain thing, even if it's 15 minutes a day, an hour a week, uh, two hours a month, all of those things add up. But if you don't have any availability to give yourself to that thing, then you can't see the real difference. You're able to contribute to the much larger fabric of social change. That is so good. Um, And again, extremely convicting, (laughs) extremely uh, convicting for those of us. We just want to say yes to everything. And, you know, we, we think we're doing the right thing, not realizing that's taking away from what we're ultimately supposed to be doing. There's so much more in this book. I mean, you talk about um, being brave, pursuing something real. There's just so much more here. Um, but I really want people to go pick up this book when we stand, because I think it's going to be very important for us shaping the soul of how we do justice, the soul of how we seek justice together. But I want to ask you one final question here, Terrence. And, and this question is about the collective. We like to say here at The Witness that we are a black Christian collective, which implies a multitude of people from different experiences with the same similar culture and heritage and faith coming together to work toward the flourishing, what we call being free in soul and in body. How important is it for us as black Christians to do this together? How important is the togetherness um, in what Mm. we're doing, in everything that we're doing? Because I, I feel as though there's always this temptation for us to do things ourselves and to prove that we can do it by ourselves. Can you talk about not proving that? Can you talk about how it is so important for us to work alongside one of each other. Yes, yeah, man. Uh, there's a old adage that says it takes a village to raise a child. Yeah. And I would uh, suggest that it takes a village to change the world. OK. Mm-hmm. And and so uh, everything happens in in a village uh, and we're talking about community uh, networks happen in community. Opportunities happen in community. Wisdom happens in community. Uh, Ideas happen in community. Sustainability happens in community. Um, uh, Change happens in community. And for the person who may feel like they've been isolated, maybe this is an invitation into the community. 
where you can make yourself vulnerable enough to be seen, but also to see someone else. Uh, because you never know how you may be activated by some someone seeing something great in you and calling it out. I would not be where I am. You probably would not be where you are Definitely had it not. not been for the village uh, calling yes. those things out. And so when we all come together as a, a, a black collective, uh, when we all make ourselves vulnerable, when we all share in our pains and in our sufferings, but also in our joys and our excitement, man, beautiful things start to happen. And I would suggest that it takes a village to change the world. That's so good, Terrence. Man, thank you so much for being here. Uh, I know many of our, our audience members and listeners may not have been familiar with you before, but now they are. And so where can they follow you? How can they support the very important work that you're doing on the ground, um, helping those without an address? Yeah, for sure. Uh, if you want to look up our organization, you can go to lovebeyondwalls.org. Uh, or you can follow us on social media. That's at Love Beyond Walls. That's Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Or if you want to look me up, um, you can follow me at I'm Terrence Lester. Uh, that's I-M-T-E-R-E-N-C-E-L-E-S-T-E-R. Man, it's been a, a pleasure to be here and uh, very humble and grateful to, to be a servant alongside people like uh, the Black Witness uh, and this collective. And uh, the many people who are part of this this community, man, to, to make a real uh, collective change in our world and our society. Well, the book is When We Stand. The organization is Love Beyond Walls. The man is Terrence Lester. Brother, it has been a joy to have you here at Pass the Mic right here on The Witness. And we really, really appreciate the work that you're doing and look forward to collaborating with you in the future um, to getting more of your work out there to the world. Thank you, Tylen. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.